Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here with Dr. Richard Connolly, who is the Director of Crease at Birmingham University and Associate Fellow of the Eurasia Program at Chatham House. We're going to be talking about issues in Russia, procurement, and some strategy here today. Dr. Richard Connolly, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Thank you, Eric. So you wrote a very interesting article recently, and you were saying that, well, the usual figures reported by the U.S. on military spending seems to be more than the aggregate of the spending for the next 10 countries or more combined. So it always looks like the U.S. is outspending all of our adversaries by a huge margin. But that all kind of depends on how you convert from one currency to another. So can you describe how these currency conversions are done and what effect do they have on our perception of military spending? That's right. The two principal measures, or rather, I should say, the one principal measure is to um, convert various different countries' currencies into U.S. dollars at market exchange rates. In doing so, a whole host of factors come into play. I'll give you some examples of that in a moment. But I think it's fair to say that the market exchange rate measure of military expenditure and also of GDP more widely is the most common measure used when we're looking at cross-country comparisons of military expenditure. There are very few, uh, whether they be think tanks or academics or uh, even policymakers, who use alternative measures. So I'd say that this is the one that's used by most people. Uh, so that's why I say it's the principal measure. Uh, the other measure is to measure GDP, economic activity in other countries, and then, as a sub-component of that, military expenditure at purchasing power parity, which I'll talk about in, in, in a moment. It's fair to say that that is used less often, certainly when talking about military expenditure. Lots of international organizations like the IMF and the World Bank will use PPP to, for instance, give a, an estimate of a country, the size of a country's GDP. Um, so those, in very broad terms, are the two measures. I'll go into a little bit more detail on each one so that your listeners can understand if they're not people who are already familiar with this. If we're thinking about market exchange rates, essentially the exchange rate between the dollar and any other country in the world, whether that be the Saudi real, the Russian ruble, um, or um, the Indian rupee, will be dependent on a whole host of factors. But basically it boils down to the demand for um, each respective currency. So to use the Russian economy as an example here, we could say that the demand for rubles tends to grow when the price of oil is high or if Russia's oil output, that's its principal export, um, is growing or high. When the price of oil goes down or when uh, Russian oil output declines, um, the, the, the external demand for Russian rubles tends to decline with it. Now, this demand for Russian rubles, as you can imagine, as a demand for any other good or service, tends to drive prices up or down. And so if we look, if you were to look at a, a chart of the strength of the Russian ruble relative to the US dollar over the course of the last 30 years, you'd see a pretty strong correlation between the price of oil and the strength of the Russian ruble. When oil is high, the ruble appreciates and it goes in the other direction when the price of oil declines. That's a very rough 
stylized assessment. There are other factors, of course, that drive the demand for a currency. If, for instance, a country is going through a financial crisis and there's a lot of capital leaving a country, then people are then selling, in this instance, rubles to buy dollars or euros or other currencies, which tends to drive that currency down. Now, that very basic explanation should show you that a lot of, you know, sort of very contingent factors can result in quite sharp fluctuations in a current in a country's currency over time. And that is something that when we're trying to measure, uh, for instance, either GDP or military expenditure can result in very sharp movements up or down for reasons to do other than changes in military expenditure. So to give you, a, again, a very good example of that, in 2014-15, the price of oil declined at the end of 2014 and then into the beginning of 2015. As a result, the Russian ruble depreciated. According to most market exchange rate-based estimates of Russian GDP and Russian military expenditure, Russian military expenditure declined sharply at that point. In actual facts, if we were looking at Russian military expenditure in rubles, which is the currency that the government pays its servicemen and with which it procures its equipment in, military expenditure was rising quite sharply, actually, over that period in 2014, 15 and 16 on the, ba the back of a military modernization program. So the use of market exchange rates created this really distorted picture of Russian military expenditure. It suggested that it was going down when, in fact, expenditure was going up. And actually, the price of a lot of the goods that the Russian government was buying, you know, the, uh, the salaries it was paying its servicemen and women, the price of the equipment that it was purchasing, a lot of that wasn't really changing very much in that year. So this market exchange rate yielded a very distorted and I would say very inaccurate measure of how much Russia was really spending. So the measure that I use in the, the paper that I uh, wrote for uh, CNA and then with which Mike Kaufman and I wrote a shorter piece for War on the Rocks, PPP is a different measure. It tries to adjust for differences in living costs across countries, right? We're all aware that if you were to go on holiday or vacation, as I believe it is called in American, to Russia, um, you would find that if you were to walk down the, the street, let's say if you were to leave the very center of Moscow and walk into a suburb, you would pay a lot less for a haircut, a lot less for, for public transport, a lot less for food. And you pay a lot less, actually, for a lot of goods and services that are pretty comparable with what you would also be able to buy in the United States. And purchasing power parity, or PPP, adjusts for these differences in costs, right? So there's a sort of methodology for calculating PPP conversions across countries, right, which adjusts for these differences in living standards. The most high-profile and I guess famous example is that of the Big Mac index produced by the journal The Economist. And what they do is look at the price of a comparable, um, identical product across countries. Now, in Russia, you could buy for the price that you pay for a Big Mac in Washington, D.C., you could buy two and a half Big Macs in Moscow. Um, you could probably buy, as I understand it, four of those Big Macs if they sell them in Iran, for instance. Um, and in China, there'll be, I think it's roughly about four. In the UK, you could buy maybe 1.2 or 1.3 Big Macs for that same uh, price. And this conversion factor enables us to adjust other countries' GDPs uh, for these differences in input costs. Now, this affects military expenditure tremendously because... If you think about the type of things that a government spends when it carries out its military expenditure, it pays salaries, um, which in turn are shaped by how much uh, its servicemen and women will have to buy with those salaries. And it affects the, the, the inputs that go in, into the production of military 
uh, goods and equipment. So I think that it's very important to take these factors into account when we're estimating a country's GDP uh, and then with that a country's military expenditure. And the long and short of all of this is that poorer countries like Russia, like China, like Iran are likely to be getting more for each expenditure. And because they're not really using dollars, they're using their local currencies. And once we adjust for that fact and the differences in these costs, it turns out that they get more bang for their buck. The differences here between using the market exchange rate and the purchasing power parity are actually pretty big. So for Russia, for example, the amount that they're spending traditionally, that the way that we're reported is about $61 billion. But when you make that conversion for the purchasing power parity you're talking about, it's more like $160 billion. That's right. And then the same thing for China. It seemed like it was about $250 billion in the uh, market exchange rate and something closer to $500 billion, 475 about using the purchasing power parity. So that really you know, almost doubles. And Russia more than doubles the amount of perceived spending, even though the amount of real spending, right, that's exactly what you were saying. The currency, just like any other good or service, has a supply and a demand for that currency. And what we're really interested in is the real resources that are being deployed by the military planners and not necessarily you know, what our perceived value is in some kind of traded currency. So I think China is a similar case, like where you had oil volatility in Russia affecting the price of the ruble. China actively manipulates its currency as well to be a little bit lowballed so they can increase their exports. And this, again, has that effect of divergence between the purchasing power parity and the market exchange rate. So one of the interesting things here about the purchasing power parity, which has been kind of criticized about its use, is that it reflects the comparative value of consumer goods, not military outputs. So you brought up the Big Mac index. A Big Mac was actually, you, you showed it was basically the same as the purchasing power parity. It was like 24 rubles to the dollar for the Big Mac index and about 23.4 or so for the purchasing power parity. So it was pretty close, right? Yep. You know, the Big Mac actually has... You know, it's aggregating a lot of the same labor, same like supply chains. It, there's a lot that goes into a Big Mac. So it kind of is already fairly representative of consumption, but maybe not uh, particularly military outputs. So do you think that's a problem for the PPP? I don't. Hence, I've written um, on a pa- uh, several papers on, on the subject because I think to put it in very simple terms, I think it's roughly right, whereas I think market exchange rates are precisely wrong. And I'd much rather be roughly right than precisely wrong. But if we unpack that and look into it in a bit more detail, I mean, the first point is, as you've just raised there, even the Big Mac index actually bakes into, you know, what goes into that. uh, There's a lot of inputs that are baked into that Big Mac index. For instance, land prices, you know, on which uh, cattle are bred, which is then used as um, for the burger or land prices for the restaurants in the different cities in which they're um, based, labor costs and such like. So actually, the, the, the Big Mac and the types of inputs that go into it, although not identical to military, do capture the essence of the types of prices and differences in prices that we're looking at when we're looking at production in other countries. So, I mean, that's the first general point. The second one is that you're absolutely right that the C, the PPP measures that are constructed by the likes of the IMF and the World Bank bring together a basket of goods that tend to measure these more sort of um, consumer prices, um, as it were. But of course, consumers, 
exist all across the economy. They exist in the military as well. The two million people that work in Russia's defense industry are consumers. The one and a half million people in uniform in different type parts of the Russian uh, military and, and paramilitary forces are also consumers. So they don't operate in a vacuum. Um, these people buy their everyday goods from the wider economy at CPI prices. And as a result, what they're paying reflects what other people are paying um, as well. And also the military and the, and the defense industry compete with the civilian economy for labor. So if these were two entirely different economies with entirely different sets of prices, then we would expect to see some other distortions which aren't there um, at the moment. Where, where you could argue there is a problem um, is in the fact that not just in Russia, but in America and in the United Kingdom, all over the world, people often say, look, defense industrial production suffers from cost disease, from uh, a, a faster rate of inflation than in other parts of the economy. Now, I think that there's sometimes that's a point that I think can be exaggerated. Right? It is true in some areas, it isn't true in others, but there are plenty of other areas of the civilian economy that also suffer from cost disease. If you look at any major infrastructure projects uh, for existence, military production isn't unique in this sense. But in order to capture that, where if you wanted to construct um, a, a military-specific measure, you might try to measure changes in producer prices. Um, and that's certainly something that can be done. So what I'm working on at the moment, although I haven't finished it, is a military-specific PPP conversion sort of method for Russia. I've seen it done for China. Um, that's been a, a couple of um, Australian academics published a paper a couple of years ago on that topic where they basically used proxies to measure things like, you know, changes in prices in manufacturing, where a lot of procurement takes place, or uh, changes in prices in the labour market, which could be taken as a proxy for the price paid for troops and um, bureaucrats who work in the Ministry of Defence um, and such like. Uh, when I've done uh, my preliminary results so far, basically yield very similar results. And I can illustrate that with um, some examples um, just that are easier to, to understand, I guess, than going into a, a more complex methodology. But if we think about some of the prices for goods in the Russian military and compare them with prices in the US, if we look at the, the average salary and compare it to the average US Army salary, for instance, that is round about two and a half times lower expressed in, in market exchange rates. But in practice, when we adjust for PPP, not far off um, the US servicemen, because of course, whilst they're paid two and a half times less than the US Army uh, equivalent, they're able to buy more Big Macs. If you imagine these Russian servicemen only living on Big Macs and the US servicemen only living on Big Macs, then they would be uh, able to do that. If we can also look at the price of some individual items, if you look at, for instance, the reported price for uh, the latest uh, variant of the T90 tank, which ran about $2 million at market exchange rates and compare that to uh, the latest variant of the, the M1 Abrams, then I think you can see that the M1 is around three and a half times the price. A uh, final example that I'll give you would be the compare the price of the uh, Vasily Wyckov patrol ship, which is a sort of a, a long range patrol vessel. They've not got too many of them, but compare that with the price of the roughly comparable, not identical, um, literal combat ship. And you could buy probably five or six of the Russian equivalents for every one of the U.S. versions. So in some of these areas, you can actually buy even more than the two and a half that the Big Mac would suggest. Although there, then there are other parts of, um, of Russian production which are relatively expensive. But overall, my preliminary calculations suggest it generally evens out around at about the 2.5 PPP figure given by the Big Mac index, which is convenient. Yeah, I think it's an interesting 
argument there that the PPP measures consumer prices. Uh, well, the market exchange rate just measures the relative prices of the traded goods, and those don't look like very much of what actually goes into military production. I think you're right, especially on the producer price index side. I think there's different questions that we can ask. One is, what is the efficiency of military spending? And I think you get that out of military outputs. You know, what is the cost effectiveness of comparative tanks, for example, between the U.S. and Russia? That's an interesting question. But then you have, well, how efficient is their system at converting inputs to outputs? Whereas when we think about military spending, what I think we're trying to ask is, you know, how many real resources are made available to military planners? And then it's another question of how do they take those inputs like steel, electronics, manpower, and convert it into outputs? That's very fraught with, uh, you know, performance issues and trying to be able to estimate those. But yeah, I see that the PPP, you know, consumer prices are probably going to approximate the level of producer prices to some extent they might balance out there so i think that's a that's a good point on um using the ppp rather than the market exchange rates to kind of see you know for the military planners how many real resources can they deploy at any given year to go towards military capability I think that point that you raised, uh, that you raised there about the availability of resources and trying to assess what they are is the key point. And one of the points that um, we make in the War on the Rocks paper and that I make in the CNA paper is that once we um, look at the the resources, the ruble resources available to the people in the Russian Ministry of Defence, we can see that they've actually the level has been higher for some years, right? But the rate of change has actually not been as severe as many would have argued over the course of the last five years. Because Russia had undertaken this military modernization program, some commentators said, wow, look at this. Russia's gone from barely spending anything in US market exchange rates, but it's now spending a lot more than it was. Um, and so they exaggerated the growth, but underestimated the beginning level. And, and actually what, what is in practice happened is that the real, available, uh, the real resources available to Russian planners have been much higher than many people have estimated, going on for two or three decades. Of course, in the 1990s, when Russia was going through an extremely uh, turbulent time economically, there were not many resources available. But since 2000, it had, the, the level has been higher and it has been growing at a steadier and more constant pace than the market exchange rate uh, measures would suggest. And again, it's uh, so it means that people only took notice when it started to grow in uh, at market exchange rates. Well, actually, it had been very high and had been growing at a more sort of moderate but deliberate pace uh, for some years to come. I, I should also add another point that you made there is that about traded goods. And I think that's very important when we're looking at military expenditure, because what it means is that for some countries that import a lot of their equipment or a lot of the services, let's say catering or indeed some of the troops that they might use, Saudi Arabia, for instance, uh, for instance, the market exchange rate value of military expenditure might be more appropriate. So if we're looking at Saudi Arabia or India, they're the two largest arms importers in the world. And they're buying those goods from other countries. And then we would measure that cross-border trade, those flows across borders in dollars at market exchange rates. But for countries that produce most of their weapons systems and most of their components and most of their services themselves, like Russia, like China, then this PPP measure is much more uh, appropriate to use. So, and then to finish off the third point, as you say, what's really important is 
we can use military expenditure as a shorthand for military capability, but it is only one component. How that money is spent, how efficiently it's spent, how it's used and interacts with other areas of military capability all go into the mix in explaining a country's military capability. So all I was arguing in this paper was, look, Russia has more resources available for military expenditure than we have been estimating to date. Can we trust the military spending figures that are being extrapolated in Russia? Are there hidden cross-subsidies or other reasons that the actual dollar figure, regardless of how you do conversion into U.S. dollars, but like the ruble figure, is there some range or uncertainty about what that figure really might be? Yeah, this question has, in a sense, is independent of uh, how we choose to convert whichever exchange rate we choose to um, to, to convert rubles into dollars with. And instead, we can think about this as the defence burden. What proportion of Russian GDP goes towards military expenditure and how much do the Russian government report? And do we think that that is um, accurate? I mean, in this context, I'd say that trust is a relative term. We can trust these figures compared to, for instance, the figures that used to be given during the Soviet period, which were just, you know, completely divorced from reality. But we can probably trust them less than we could a decade ago. Over the course of the last decade, and this happened largely at the same time that they began the military modernization program of increasing uh, procurement. But around that time, the Russian government became less transparent in the figures with that it reported for military expenditure. Um, so um, they don't give any details, for instance, on how much is spent on procurement each year. Instead, people like me have to rely on going through the budget and seeing um, procurement as a residual of the things that are explained and then looking at what isn't explained and sort of, you know, approximating uh, the procurement budget from there or or and or in conjunction with um, looking at uh, public statements from senior officials. So occasionally you'll have people like uh, Gerasimov or the Minister of Defence, I guess Shoigu, or, or even Mr. Putin himself might occasionally give a figure for how much is spent on procurement, for example. So there is a budget. That budget runs to several thousand pages long. If you know where to look in it, you can come up with a, with a figure um, that gives you a, a pretty reasonable estimate of what they report that constitutes military expenditure. Now, there are two ways you can do that. You can look at, they have this category called national defence. But in addition, they also park spending on paramilitary forces like Grosgvardia, um, on the uh, atomic in- industry, which, of course, has obvious military uses, and some other areas, for subsidies to industry, shipbuilding and aircraft, um, which will fund military research. They, they'll, they'll put those in other areas of the budget. So you can piece all of those together. Now, does that then yield an accurate figure? Now, that's the figure that that most people would use. So if you look at the figures produced by the likes of CIPRI or IISS on military expenditure, they will be based on those publicly available open source figures. However, there is um, evidence, um, some evidence to suggest that they spend more than that, right, on the military. Occasionally, you'll see quotes from senior officials who will give away a bit more than um, than perhaps they should do, where they'll say this is we spent X on procurement and that figure turns out to be 60 percent higher than the figure that is given by senior officials or that we've managed to estimate by looking at the uh, the budget itself. So my sort of guess reading between the lines is that the figure that is reported by the government is a lower order estimate of real defence expenditure and that in fact there are a variety of other subsidies and perhaps hidden forms of spending 
that mean that procurement, for instance, or other forms of uh, military expenditure are higher than that reported figure. So estimating precisely what that is, of course, is very difficult. But that's what I and, and, and several other people try to do. Are the, uh, the big defense contractors and uh, firms in Russia, do they also do commercial work as well? Are there like dual use technologies coming out and all that? Yes. So that seems to be a little bit different than the way the U.S.'s firms kind of they specialize in defense and that crossover to the civilian commercial world is, you know, often sought after over the last 70 years, but seldom actually achieved. Do you think that there might be some cross subsidies there between whether that's lowering the prices or just hidden figures of actual military expenditures in Russian firms? And how much do those Russian firms actually do like commercial work on the side separate from but maybe related to military spending? Okay, I'll speak in broad brush terms here because there are, of course, always going to be some exceptions to what I'm about to say. But the first point is actually Russian firms tend to focus on military production. They nearly all have civilian output as well. But if you look at the proportion of reported sales, it's very often in the realm of 70, 80, 90, 95% military. And civilian would tend to constitute the minority share. If you compare that to most US firms, you'll find that US firms are actually much more balanced, at least according, if you, for instance, if you were to go to the CIPRI uh, top 25 arms producers or top 30 table that they produce every year, they will give, you know, a, a share, military and civilian. So an obvious one will be Boeing. Boeing produces a hell of a lot. It's one of the largest military producers in the world, but also has this enormous civilian production as well. And the same can be said for some uh, European firms uh, and um, uh, and other Western uh, defense firms. But for Russia, they tend to focus more on the military. Sorry, go on, Eric. Oh, yeah. I I didn't really have much of a perception of what was going on there in Russia. Yeah, when I think of like U.S. firms, especially in the second tier, you see some of that with Textron and the like. But for Boeing, for all of these firms, for the most part, that are major U.S. contractors, they basically separate their business units and just put a big old wall between them, especially for cost accounting reasons to make sure there's no transfer of government funding that's covering commercial costs. That was a big issue back um, in the early 70s and 60s. So I tend to see that there's kind of a big wall there in a lot of U.S. firms. And, of course, Lockheed and Northrop, they basically do zero, right, Uh, commercial work. So Boeing's an interesting one. But, again, they've had a a big wall between those two business units. Whereas when I hear what's going on in China, it seems like they're really trying to do civil-military fusion, basically. Not really sure to the extent to which, you know, a given business unit or even factory will be having multifunctional outputs. But so it sounds like in Russia, there is some civilian, but really defense firms do defense. Well, I think, and that's, it's interesting that you say that, because I guess I, my perception of the US had often been informed by the likes of these sort of SIPRI tables, where they'll give these very rough, approximate shares. And if, as you say, they're, they're actually, there's, there are quite clear walls between them, then that might make the Russian defense firms feel a bit better about how they're operating. Because what that would suggest then, these Russian firms tend to concentrate on military, but what they're missing is this other part of the the larger umbrella firm that deals with civilian activities. But I'll give you some examples of how it works in Russia. The first point is most of these firms are owned by the state. 
they're not privately owned. There are some privately owned, but even those privately owned firms tend to have very strong links to the state because this is a, an industry of strategic importance. And in Russia, if you're an industry of strategic importance, whether that be in the energy industry, telecommunications, finance, um, or the arms industry, then it's, the state likes to have um, control. Or whether it likes it or not, it does have uh, a high degree of control. So they're state-owned, firstly. Um, they also very often tend to be large holding groups of a number of different firms, some of which are loss-making, some of which are quite competitive. And what you tend to see is the, the more competitive, profitable firms within uh, a holding group tend to subsidise the less profitable components. So to give a high-profile example, the missile uh, firm uh, Almaz Antai, they produce things like the, the, the S-400 and, the, and other surface-to-air missile systems. And that resulted from a merger between two independent groups a few years ago, one of which was very profitable and the other one which was less. And, this, and you see this across Russia's defence industry. They're organised by types of systems produced. So you have, you'll have a tactical missiles corporation, which comprises different subunits. You'll have United Aircraft Corporation, which has the old MiG and Sukhoi design bureaus, plus their production facilities. You'll have United Shipbuilding Corporation, which will have the different shipyards, you know, the ones that produce nuclear-powered submarines and those that produce smaller corvettes or, or, or frigates. And this is how they tend to be organised. For some of them have obvious civilian output. So, for instance, OAK, the, the, uh, the um, United Aircraft Corporation there, they build regional passenger jets, the, uh, the Sukhoi, the, the regional airliner, and they're attempting to build a larger one. They'll be competitive with the likes of Boeing um, and Airbus. But they have, uh, to go back to the original point, been less successful in this area. Now, this is an important point in Russia at the moment because uh, Mr. Putin has said, look, the fat days uh, for, for defence contracts, for defence procurement, are coming to an end, or some of them have said has already peaked and we're on our way down now. If you want to stay profitable, then you need to start getting your orders from elsewhere, which means one of two things. Either you export more and or produce civilian goods. Now, they used to call this conversion after the Soviet Union had collapsed or at the end of the Soviet period, but that term has rather pejorative connotations because it was a complete failure. And instead now they're calling it diversification. And that is what their the senior government officials are pushing. And they've, they've given these sort of quite ambitious targets. So at the moment, civilian production is, according to official sources, accounts for around just over 20 percent of overall defence industry outputs. And they want to, uh, to to get that up to 30 percent was it by 2030 and then uh, up to 50 percent some years after that. I forget the precise targets because they keep changing. But that's what, what they want to do. They want to make those Russian firms uh, be a bit more like how I characterize US firms, according to, to, to Cipri. Although, as you pointed out, that might not be how they function in practice. And that's going to be an ongoing effort, my guess would be, that they will experience a lot of problems because there are certain goods that lend themselves to being produced by military industrial firms, but some that aren't. I, for instance, I find it difficult to see um, what, you know, Almaz Antai, the producer of surface-to-air missiles, it's not easy then to just venture out into, let's say, washing machines or, or tablets, you know, sort of uh, computer tablets. Um, whereas for some others, that'll be easier. If you're thinking about United Shipbuilding Corporation, they might be in a position to build ships for the extraction of oil and gas in the Arctic, for instance, or for use on Russia's northern sea routes. So I think some firms are likely to be more successful than others in that respect. It seems that Russia is going to probably have some challenges there ahead of them trying to get that fusion. But another question is also kind of like on 
well, what's already in the private economy and how quickly can defense firms leverage the greater R&D expenditures going on in the commercial world and then adapt that for military uses? And it seems that Russia, you know, their private sector isn't nearly as dynamic as the U.S. The U.S. tends to still be the leader in, in many emerging technologies. But then in the U.S., we also kind of have this divide, it seems, uh, between the commercial and the military. And oftentimes, for example, you know, maybe DARPA or some of the technology labs will sponsor robotics, artificial intelligence and the like. And then that gets going. But then it really has to kind of diffuse into the commercial world get scaled up, and then years later it might boomerang back to uh, military development and production side to actually show up in operations. So there seems to be this divide in U.S. and commercial tech. Do you think Russia might basically have similar access to U.S. or, you know, Western commercial technology as some of the uh, Western technology firms do just because of that cultural divide in the West between those firms? Or, you know, is there a real issue with uh, Russia's technology development due to the lack of access to Western technologies, whether that's just geographic market or due to sanctions? Okay, so uh, a lot to speak about there. So first point is, I think that there is a similar divide that you've just described in the US, but I would say that in Russia, that divide is sharper. So to take your point there about research and development, if you look at the, the US, I think and I'm speaking with uh, figures off the top of my head here, but the last time I looked, I think that R&D across the economy as a proportion of GDP in, in America is around about 25 to 3%, right? And that's, that's considered quite high by a high-income country status. And hence, America, the US being a, um, a leader in, in most areas of, uh, of innovation. If you compare that figure with Russia, well, Russia, the figure is not quite 1% of GDP goes towards R&D. Right. So Russia as a whole spends less on R&D than the US. However, probably about 75 to 80 percent of Russia's R&D takes place in the military sphere for military purposes or for dual use, let's say nanotechnology or biotech. But, but in fact, you know, we'll have likely for, uh, for military applications, whereas in the US, a larger proportion of its two and a half percentage points will be undertaken by civilian firms, small and medium sized enterprises engaged in research and development that has nothing to do with uh, military tech. So Russia concentrates a lot of its smaller R&D on the military. But what tends to happen, of course, in Russia, you've got this very lopsided R&D system, ecosphere, as it were, where the military dominates most of R&D, which means that precisely that point that you made there about diffusion. Um, becomes a problem. So Russia's, you know, Russian firms tend to be quite good at developing new systems, at developing prototypes, at developing ideas. The design bureaus are very active and they can come up with, you know, very sort of um, very well uh, justified and detailed proposals for systems and they can build prototypes. But then diffusing the sort of uh, those ideas to the wider economy and then, as you pointed out, later enjoying the benefits of some type of boomerang effects, that's something where Russia performs much worse. That's not just in the military, but also in civilian R&D as well. So if you read the literature on innovation and, um, uh, you know, and technological development in Russia, and which is, which is very pertinent to our discussion here, then uh, that's where that's one of Russia's big weaknesses. You mentioned then access to foreign technology, um, and that's one area where, let's say, 10 years ago or even six pre-2014, um, Russia uh, did rather well. I can come up with some examples there. Um, one will be um, if I think about um, air-to-air missile seekers. 
right? In the Soviet period, this was an area where the US um, and, and the West more widely had very clear advantages over Russia. When we get into the 1990s, into the early, early 2000s, uh, Russia's air-to-air missiles, they, they developed these nice new ideas, but they needed advanced microchips for the seeker systems, right? And software and such like, of the sort that they didn't have available to them um, at the, uh, during the end of the Soviet period. Now, this was something that from about sort of, you know, 2005 onwards, they were able to procure quite easily off the shelf from um, US or, or Western sources quite easily. Those are the types of dual use items now, of course, that will be, <laughs> that are prohibited under sanctions. So that's something where they benefited from before and, and will probably be suffering now. That's a very military specific area, but other areas that are, that are very important for military uh, procurement are things like machine tools that enable serial production of small components so that you can produce um, particular weapon systems um, at a, on a large scale. Now, this is a real weakness the russian defense industry and prior to 2014 any machine tools that the russian defense industry used any of the high precision machine tools tended to come from germany or japan right and it's precisely those machines now that are denied to them as a result of western sanctions so there was all sorts of industrial policy plans to develop these machine tools themselves some of which will have been relatively successful, some of which are taking longer to come to fruition. But I think that that's a very good example of how access to tech Western technologies that was previously readily available pre-2014 has slowed, caused disruption in certain parts of the defence industry. Now, if we look at overall output, they're still doing pretty well, but there are bottlenecks and there are areas where I'm sure Russian planners would like to be doing much better and it's a bit more difficult. Um, the final qualification to all of that, of course, is this isn't the Cold War. There are other producers of these goods um, that Russia can go to. And what we've seen over the last six years, I actually wrote a book on uh, Russia's response to sanctions. And one of the things that I noted in that book was the imports of dual use items, electronic items and machinery from the likes of China and other East Asian economies has grown rapidly over the course of the last five or six years. So you can see they're sourcing these products, this machinery from new suppliers. Whether those suppliers produce goods that are of the same quality as Germans or US or Japanese goods is an entirely different question. But certainly the Russians are showing an adaptability. It's interesting you brought up on the machine tools and the inputs there. Have you ever read uh, Seymour Melman's book on, he had a couple books like Profits Without Production on the machine tool industry and essentially how U.S. machine tool industry withered away because of cost plus contracts from the defense industry. Did you ever read those? No, I haven't, but uh, it sounds like it's uh, something I should read. Yeah, they're, they're pretty interesting from back in the, the 60s through the 80s. He was, he was kind of making those points there. One of the things that I saw from your excellent reports on the Russian modernization programs was that procurement and research and development as a proportion of defense spending in Russia is really quite high. It seemed that, you know, it was more than 70%, perhaps 80%. And then repairs was something like 20%. And when I think of repairs, I'm like, I'm kind of putting this in a U.S. context, like operations and maintenance for U.S., it's flipped. It's more like 50, 60, 70% of the spending is on operations and maintenance. And then R&D tends to be perhaps 10% and procurement, perhaps 20%, 25%. So we spend much less on R&D and procurement as a proportion of our budget. And I tend to see that as, well, perhaps poor decisions in research and development 
and procurement, which led to high operating costs, you know, tends to squeeze out some of those expenditures in the future. Whereas potentially, you know, having a high procurement percentage of the funding actually shows that, you know, they're, they're building in simplicity, reliability, and all that kind of stuff to keep operations and maintenance low. It, do you see this distinction here between the amount spent on buying new stuff and new investments versus the, the operations repairs between the U.S. or Western firms and countries and uh, Russia? Or are these just incommensurable? Or are we just missing some of the picture from the Russian spending figures? And we can't really make that comparison. We don't really know exactly. They might be closer to in line with each other. Yeah, I think the first point, going back to a point that I made earlier, is that about transparency in Russian figures. So, I mean, the data that I give are those that are released by either public statements or in um, the Russian budget, um, which is, if you could argue, what they would want us to hear and not necessarily reflective of reality. That's the first point. The second point is, and you've touched on it there, is that we might be looking at apples and oranges here, that the context shapes what these things mean. I'll get back to that in a moment. But a third point is that this hasn't always been the case that procurement and R&D has accounted for such a high share of Russian military expenditure. So this really began to spike after or began to grow after 2011. Right. So prior to 2011, so if we go back to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, from 1991 all the way up until 2011, the procurement and R&D share was relatively low. Right. Uh, compared to today. And that was for the simple reason that the, they didn't have as much money as they would have liked. So they tended to pay salaries, tended to pay operations and maintenance. And what was left over for procurement at the end of it just went to a few sort of, you know, um, big ticket items, you know, like getting the odd nuclear submarine out or procuring a few ICBMs. That changed after 2010. For a variety of reasons, some people say it was due to Russia's poor performance in the, uh, the, the war with Georgia in 2008. Um, others would argue it was on the cards for a long time anyway, simply because there hadn't been a refreshment of the uh, equipment stocks um, within the Russian military since the mid-1980s. But for whatever reason, this um, procurement increase began with the state armaments program 2011 to 2020. So after 2011, we start to see this increase. Now, this has been presented as a one-time period of growth, right? The idea was to take Russia's, the proportion of modern equipment in uh, the, uh, Russia's uh, inventory, total military inventory, from around about 15%, as it was assessed to be in uh, 2011, which is awful, to 70% by 2020. So, of course, once they reach 70 um, which, according to Russian officials, they will next year. They nearly reached it this year. Um, then the job will be to simply maintain that level rather than to keep, you know, surging towards 100. So as a result, this is why when I, I mentioned earlier, Mr. Putin had said, look, the weapons orders um, have peaked. According to the senior officials, they don't need to keep up that pace of procurement. So that large share that it had registered over the course of most of the last decade apparently is going to be a one time sort of phenomenon. Now, you could question whether that, that's how political economy works, right? Once you feed um, uh, these firms, will they uh, then suddenly become efficient producers of civilian goods or rely on export contracts? My guess would be not. My guess would be that they're now big, powerful. They've got lots of people working for them and they will lobby for more orders. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a cynic. Um, maybe it'll work out how, how Mr. Putin seems to hope it will. Um, but I mentioned that merely that that would account for why this surge occurred. That's at least the official version. 
then there's the, the, the question of, of modernization. What that means in Russian, I think, is something different to what it means in American. So for in, in Russian, modernization uh, within the budget means a type of procurement. So uh, to give you an example, you'll know uh, or you might know if you follow uh, these things even superficially that the Russians have apparently have developed this hypersonic air launch missile, the Kinjal, which is launched from an updated version of the MiG-31 interceptor. So what was an interceptor is now being sort of, you know, rebadged as a, as a strike aircraft, right? That is a modernised, it's the MiG-31K. So the, the work that would have been undertaken there is modernisation, rather than necessarily just changing parts to keep it, as we might call it, maintenance. And so they, they modernise ships. So for instance, you know, if we look at the Russian naval procurement, a large part of their plan at the moment, at least half of it, is not buying new ships. It's actually getting the old Soviet era ships, giving them new engines, um, new uh, electronics, new radar systems, new weapon systems, and then pushing them back out to sea and saying these are new modernized uh, weapon systems. So I think they do that to a much greater degree than we do. Of course, there'll be various different blocks of F-16, but they were usually produced, as I understand it, from fresh. In Russia, you tend to take the old air, uh, airframe and then, you know, sort of um, upgrade it and overhaul it in a much more radical fashion um, than I think is common in Western economies. And then the final point, which I think that you made, uh, touched on, which I think is also a very good one, is that of the complexity of the machinery. A lot of the equipment and a lot of the production processes used in, uh, for Russian uh, weaponry is, I don't know if primitive is the right word, but it's certainly a bit more robust than um, those used in, in Western factories. Now, that has, I think, sort of pros and cons. You know, on the, on the plus side, it means that if there were a cyber attack on, let's say, Rava Gonzavod, the producer of tanks, my guess would be they could continue to produce tanks because it's much more labor intensive than a lot of the factories that we would have in Western companies. What it also means is there's a trade off for how less technologically advanced those systems might be in practice. But I, I think the point you were, you were trying to you were, you were intimating was uh, that, that these are more robust systems, that they have more redundancies um, and they are in some way a bit more simple to maintain. And I think there is some mileage in that point uh, that you make there. Um, I also think it's something that, you know, might be left to, I don't know, military units themselves to to get on with. You know, <laughs> you've got a plane, maintain it. And it might not come up in this in, in the budget in the same way that it might for a U.S. equivalent. Thanks for that clarification. I read that, you know, Russia has kind of been on a tear on modernization, like a, a thousand helicopters were modernized since 2015. A thousand combat airplanes were either bought or modernized. They bought 250 ballistic missiles. So, yeah, it, it, it might be that there's this bow wave of modernization spending in Russia that, that might shift that balance in the future. But overall, it seems that I think you're right. When I think of, you know, Russian helicopters, for example, you know, very reliable, lower cost to maintain they don't have necessarily as many bells and whistles which may invite you know added maintenance procedures to keep it up in the air and all that that's uh, i would also add on that there are also examples where you could say that that doesn't work in russia's favor so i mean you know going back <laughs> to the soviet period the mig-29s engines for instance were notoriously short life and we've seen this with export contracts where you know the indians bought a lot of mig-29s and these engines really don't stand up to a great deal of use and that once used they would have to be you know sort of uh, overhauled or changed very quickly so in that respect there are examples where you'll see the prices go up so it depends on 
on what we're um, what we're looking at. But I think as a general rule, certainly if we just to, again on the example there for tanks, Russia barely took delivery of any brand new main battle tanks in the last part of that uh, 2020 rearmament program. They'd said they wanted something like 2,300. Now in the end, around about 1,800 tanks, main battle tanks, were delivered to the armed forces. Only a handful. For testing purposes, were the T-14 Armata. Most of them are T-72. I think is it BM-3. You know the most updated. But basically, there were T-72s that were given to Rava Gonsovod at the tank factory, and then they modernised them in the factory. And so they've had to, taken delivery of large numbers of these. There's actually, for those who are interested, you can watch a documentary on uh, a Russian uh, TV state TV channel where they spend 10 episodes in this factory showing how they're produced, uh, which is excellent for, from my point of view as an economist, because you see sort of how labor intensive it is and how, uh, assuming they're telling us the truth, that they haven't really got this fantastic sort of production hall where they're using the latest equipment and machine tools. But it's all done in a very you know, sort of primitive and a robust fashion. You know, this explaining why the equipment is the way that it is goes all the way back to uh, the types of production facilities that they used to work to build these things in the first place. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the PPP versus the MER again. When labor is relatively cheap compared to capital, then you will be more labor intensive. As you were saying, it seems to be the case in Russia, whereas in the U.S., it's hard to compute away that labor from higher valued uses in the civilian economy. And and so potentially, you know, capitalization uh, might be greater on the on the U.S. side than than on the on the Russian side. And that reflects the opportunity cost facing those military planners. Absolutely. Agreed. So I want to talk a little bit about how Russia got to where it is today. But first, I want to go back to the Soviet era. And we often hear that the reason, and this might be U.S. folklore, but usually you hear people say that, oh, well, you know, during the Reagan era in the 1980s, military expenditures went up and the U.S. did this big military buildup that the Soviet Union basically couldn't keep up with and it supposedly bankrupted them or they just felt like they were falling behind, and um, that kind of led to the fall of the Soviet Union. Do you believe in that narrative? Do you think that that's correct or just part of the story of a much broader narrative? What's going on there? I don't buy into that narrative at all. I think it's a very small part of a much bigger, extraordinary series of, of events. My own on that, which I wrote about about 10 years ago, was that for me, what was, you know, there were two really big, important parts of the Soviet economy and the Russian economy today, actually, and that is the energy industry and the defense industry. And the energy industry pays, uh, <laughs> funds the defense industry by and large. For me, where the, where the Soviet Union fell down in economic terms, I mean, it had, to be sure, a less efficient system than the West. You know, the system of central planning had all sorts of uh, problems and inefficiencies within it. I teach a course on that at the uh, the university, and you know, I don't have enough time to come up with the examples of the inefficiencies um, that it that, that it resulted in. They also spent allocated a much higher share of their national output to defence than the US. The US was spending, I don't know, seven, eight, nine percent in the 1980s. And the, the, the Soviet Union, I mean, Mr. Gorbachev at the time said they didn't even know how much they were spending, but they thought it might have been somewhere in the region of 20 percent. Some people said 25, some people said 15. It was high. <laughs> so it was a poorer country trying to keep up with a more advanced country that could do more with less of with a smaller share. So this was a hyper militarized economy. 
the uh, the Soviet Union, and that caused all sorts of problems because if you're producing a lot of tanks that really will only be used in the event of Armageddon or nuclear weapons in the event of Armageddon, then the opportunity cost there was you know civilian production, lots of other types of goods that could have made the Soviet consumer and the Soviet economy more more widely work better, simply weren't produced because they favoured military production. So these were all well documented problems. But another big problem was the fact that the Soviet Union became a major oil exporter in the 1970s. And it really became very hooked to the, uh, the oil needle. And so this inefficiency and in in sort of slowdown in productivity happened in the Soviet Union in the 1960s. But by the time it gets to the 1970s, as the Soviet Union started exporting lots of oil, massive export revenues came in, right, which they'd never enjoyed before. So dollar sales for foreign currency, with which they could buy food that their agricultural sector couldn't produce, with which they could buy um, civilian consumer goods from uh, either Western countries or East European countries at that time. And they were able to do a lot with these oil earnings. And in the, in the 70s was great for the Soviet Union because of the conflict in the Middle East. Oil prices, you know, in 73 and then with the Iranian revolution in 79 spiked. And the Soviet Union, despite the fact that domestically it was becoming less productive, it looked like it had never had it so good. People were eating, people had food, people had apartments, and the military was, was had a, a blue blue water navy under Gorshkov. They surpassed the United States in the missile race. All these sorts of things were happening to the Soviet Union. Then in the mid-1980s, the price of oil plummeted. Right? The Saudis increased the supply of oil in order to drive down prices. Now, conspiracy theorists in Russia say that this was because Washington told Riyadh to do this <laughs> um, so, so that uh, um, Soviet export prices would go down. I think a more sort of banal explanation is that actually, or a more, one in which there's more evidence, is the Saudis were actually trying to um, drive prices down to keep out high-cost U.S. producers in Alaska <laughs> um, and offshore. Whatever the reasons for it, prices plummeted. And the Soviet Union in the mid-1980s were faced with this sort of uh, problem, not just of keeping up militarily with, with America, but also with modernizing the economy more generally. They were speaking about the desire to do that before the price of oil went down and before Reagan had spoken about an increase in arms spending. So they were faced then suddenly with, well, how do we keep up with the US in this respect? And how do we also modernize the economy when we're running out of money? And so they started borrowing from, rest, uh, from Western banks and, and you started to see a growth in, in a budget deficit. There were lots of other policy decisions that were basically sort of harebrained, which I won't go into now um, because this isn't sort of a, a podcast on Soviet economic history. But the long and short is, is that as a result of this oil revenue crunch, the leadership started doing things that they wouldn't have done before. You know, they were pressured by the lack of money to experiment with both the economic system and the political system. And, and that, broadly speaking, was what Pierre Stroika reconstruction was designed to do. It was supposed to make the Soviet system work better so that it could keep up with the US and be a more modern economy. And that's a story of Russian history. You know, these bouts of uh, state-led policies to make the country more modern and to catch up with its competitors. And the collapse of the Soviet Union, in my view, and maybe it's too much of a sort of an economically determined view, but was that it was the result of a failed economic policy. If you look at how much they were looking to allocate towards defence spending, they were they were looking at reducing it under Gorbachev anyway. I don't think that Greg and saying, right, we're going to spend more, meant that the Soviet Union suddenly then spent even more. They were already spending loads, <laughs> right? And they were looking to reduce it anyway so that they could modernise the economy. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, a fan of that narrative. I know some people are, but I'm not. I was always skeptical of that narrative as well. There's a ring of truth to it, but, you know, it's not really giving us what really went on there. I think it, it, it also it's something that people will appeal to 
policymakers who think we did X and then there was outcome Y. Right. You know, and, and of course, I can well imagine, you know, the, the, the United States policymakers at the time will say, look, you know, uh, there was everybody telling us that we were too aggressive, too assertive, too gung ho with increasing defense spending. But look, it resulted in the defeat of our adversary. And I can see why that's an attractive narrative, but I just don't think it's supported by the evidence. We like to give ourselves agency to think. Yeah, that exactly. Perhaps we have less. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so moving on, and after the fall of the wall, um, fall of Soviet Union, a lot of military production and armaments factories were actually in Ukraine. So what was the effect on Russia's military procurement from that divorce with Ukraine? That's correct. So that was the second most important producer of uh, military goods, whether they be components like helicopter engines or you know guidance systems for missiles or the largest ship some of the largest shipyards for instance were in ukraine uh, and ukraine as a whole was the second most important of the soviet republics others had their niches as well so some transport aircraft were produced for instance in uh, uzbekistan and uh, belarus produced the, uh, the the chassis for the you know the mobile mis- uh, tactical and strategic missile launchers that you see so, you know, because it was all one country, they produced different goods and components across that planned economy. And then once it disintegrated, then suddenly this became a matter of foreign trade. But what tended to happen, well, two things. First, the procurement demand from Moscow plummeted in the 1990s. Right. So it didn't matter whether you were in Russia or Ukraine or Belarus or Estonia or Uzbekistan. The demand for your production was gone. Right. In the early 1990s, when the economic reformers, the first economic reform government under the leadership of Yegor Gaidar, you know, I think they cut defense spending in 1992 by about 80%. Right. And that was after the cuts that had taken place, substantial cuts and the the, uh, the end of the Gorbachev era. So you can imagine what defense spending was in 1992 compared to, let's say, 1986. It was just a, it was tiny. And so the demand had gone down. And then that demand had to go around and much, you know, all of these firms. Now, some of these firms managed to continue production because there was some demand for what they did. Now, for Ukraine, um, they continued to build helicopter engines for Russian helicopters, which continue, which were being exported to India, China, for instance. Some warships were built. You know, so if you think about the um, the Talwar class for, for India, this was essentially the Krivat 4 that was produced in Ukrainian shipyards and with Ukrainian engines. And so some firms continued to survive, but in smaller form. They lost a lot of, they shed a lot of labor. A lot of scientists work, went off to work elsewhere in other countries, but some of them survived to the point that by we get to the early 2010s, the Ukrainian defense industry was the most closely integrate, integrated defense industry with the Russian. So when under this 2020 rearmament plan, Russia wanted to build 12 frigates and all of those were to have Ukrainian engines, um, which as a result of sanctions, most of which were not delivered. Helicopter engines came from Ukraine. Some of the sort of uh, avionics for, for combat aircraft came from Ukraine. And as, just as Ukraine was important to Russia, Russia was very important to Ukraine. You know, Ukraine was one of the top 10, world's top 10 arms exporters pre-2014, but it really only had one real customer, um, and that was Russia. There were several others. China was buying some things, and they have, as you, as you might be aware, um, swooped since 2014. Um, and uh, so did Turkey and, and India, but mainly it was Russia. Sanctions ended that. That's not Western sanctions. That was a Ukrainian arms embargo um, that resulted from 
the annexation of Crimea and then Russian involvement um, and support in, in the conflict in southeast Ukraine. And so the, the, towards the, the summer of 2014, they said, oh, we're not going to sell them <laughs> the, uh, the weapons that they'll be, they could be using um, to kill us. And that disrupted the rearmament program in key areas, as I say, in particular in frigates. Uh, for instance, Russia didn't take delivery of anywhere near as many as they would have hoped to. And in production of uh, engines for the, the MI-8 helicopter that you uh, mentioned earlier, for example. And Russia's developed a program to replace import substitution, to build those goods itself. Because very often they were designing these products. They designed the, 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 the gas turbines. They designed the, uh, the frigates. But they were built in Ukraine. But the Russians were fairly optimistic as to how quickly they could replace these goods, you know, in defense industrial production, producing, getting a, you know, for, if we think about uh, ship engines, getting a test bed up and running that can test these engines and then calibrating them so they can be fitted to these frigates. And so that they then work, you know, without any interruption is something that takes a lot longer than, than two or three years. So the Russians are in that in the process of trying to do that at the moment and reportedly are, are making uh, you know, they've been quite successful, but they have not been as successful as they stated they wanted to be in 2014 and 15. So another pivotal point in Russian procurement was kind of the brief Georgia campaign that occurred in 2008. Can you describe just geopolitically what was going on there briefly? And then how did Russia's military procurement react to that experience? Well, the, the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that has been the, the Georgia campaign has been cited as one of the big reasons for the increase in spending that took place after 2011, at least in procurement spending. First things first, Russia won that war and it won it relatively easy now, easily. Now, they did suffer some losses and there were a number of reported deficiencies in the way in which those forces um, operated. Now, some of that may very well have just been because prior to 2008, there hadn't been as much uh, training taking place in the Russian armed forces um, as, for instance, there are today. So just in terms of exercises, they weren't exercising well, so you don't fight well. But I think it certainly was seized upon by those in the defence industry as an opportunity to say, look, you know, we're using Soviet era equipment here and we should have been using you know, higher end equipment, more sort of precision guided munitions, for instance, we should have had greater, you know, sort of interaction between networking of, 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 uh, of our forces, uh, you know, instead of having to use mobile phones to communicate between uh, units. You know, these were some of the, the examples of, uh, of what had happened. So I think it was a confluence of events. There was money, they thought was going to be available 2008 before the global financial crisis um, hit. So there was a feeling that there was now money available for procurement that there wasn't in the 1990s and the early 2000s. There was a need expressed by both the military and the defence industrial complex. And then there was this poor performance in Georgia. So I think Georgia was, in my opinion, import, important, but it wasn't the only factor. I think this probably would have happened without the, the, the short war in Georgia, to be honest, because so many people wanted it to happen. You've written a, a good bit about uh, the GPV programs in Russia, which is their kind of like strategic modernization programs. And there are about three of them now. There's one for 2005, um, another program which was just finishing up that was targeting 2020, and a new program for 2027. Can you just give us an overview of what was trying to be accomplished and how successful each one of these either were or are expected to be? Yeah, these, uh, the GPV is the Russian uh, abbreviation for the state armaments program. So basically, the Russians do like to plan. Um, they don't always execute their plans, but they do like to have plans. And what will happen is over a sort of a 
a 10-year period, at the beginning of a 10-year period, they say, here is a, a plan of what we want to procure for the military. Presumably, this is done in conjunction with the military, who say, this is what we need, this is you know, our doctrine, this is what we envisage our forces doing, and, and the type of equipment that we need, and then the defence industry interacts with them. And then the end result is this state armaments programme. Now, this doesn't have the force of law it's not there, you know, if it has targets or even indeed when you see reports for how much money has been allocated. Um, that is a, a notional approximation of what they would like to do. It's not a legally binding programme, but they have these. And I wrote in particular about the 20, GPV 2020, about some of the targets that were outlined in that and, and, and the extent to which the Russian defence industry was able to meet them. Now, they've had these state armaments programmes since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The three that you mentioned there, the 2005 or it was, I think that was GPV uh, 2010. They, they get replaced periodically. They never run the whole 10 years, basically. So let's just take the 2011 to 2020. It was replaced in 2018. So we're now in GPV 2027, which will in, in turn, I've read, be replaced probably in about 2024 or 2025. And a new one will come up. So really, the only the front end of this program is of any importance because the back end will never uh, be executed. And they define in broad terms the objectives, the types of equipment that needs to be procured. Now, for the one that came after the Georgia war, GPV 2020, that was the, the big objective there was to take the military, uh, mili the stock of military equipment that was defined as modern from 15 to 70 percent. I mentioned that earlier. That was the headline figure. Now, this is a classified document, so we don't know what's in it. We can speculate and we can sort of read the, uh, the tea leaves from comments delivered by Russian officials as to what it is that, that is contained within this document. But it's not actually something that's publicly available. And, and there are also some figures given. So, you know, in, in 2011, they said there's going to be 20 trillion rubles allocated towards this program. Actually, I think what was in the end, it looked like would have been spent, would have been around about 12 or 13 trillion right? What well, not the 20. And then similarly, when that was replaced with GPV 2027, which was uh, a couple of years ago, they said, yeah, we're going to spend 20 trillion on this. Uh, whether they spend 20 trillion rubles is entirely open to question. But this broader program is then comprised of annual state defense orders. This is the GOS in Russian or in English, the state defense order. And so every year they'll have, you know, a, a, a targets for what needs to be procured. Right. So, you know, as I've just described it there, you've got quite a clear idea within the Russian Ministry of Defense as to what equipment is going to be delivered. The broad objectives in the GPV will be, as reported for 2027, are things like hypersonic missiles, fifth generation aircraft uh, like the Sukhoi 57 you know, new submarines, but they speak in quite broad terms. Well, if you want to see really where the money's going, then you look at the state defence order each year. Again, we don't see that. We just hear reports and, and we hear reports of contracts signed between the Ministry of Defence and the different arms companies. So just before Christmas, there are a number of contracts were announced for, you know, orders for next year or orders over the next few years. And from that, we can infer roughly what this GPV is looking like. But we, you do have to scratch around and piece together little pieces of information. So a lot here in the U.S. has kind of been made about especially hypersonics out of Russia. But then there's also a bunch of newer models of systems that Russia is also going after, like fifth generation aircraft. You said that they've done pretty well um, modernizing older systems. How have they been doing on the newer models of systems? Yeah, I think that's a big if we look at in the things that you might have read that I've 
uh, written about the, the, the GP Vita 2020, um, they largely achieved that headline objective of increasing the the share of modern equipment in overall equipment and they did that in a number of ways one is to just simply get rid of all the old <laughs> the old stuff and park it in a different field and say that it's no longer in the inventory that reduces the denominator doesn't it so you know your share goes up uh, that was one thing the other was that they would modernize older equipment and then the other was that they also produced a lot of, of new equipment but that new equipment were largely sort of you know recent iterations of older soviet equipment so to give you an example i mentioned earlier the t72 the, the most modern variant you know that is as we know that's something based on the 1970s design right but it's a, it's got lots of new additions to it if we think about the sukhoi 34 and the, uh, the sukhoi 35 these are new aircraft you know so they're not modernized airframes they are actually genuinely new aircraft with new avionics but they are all still essentially derivatives of the sukhoi 27 flanker series developed in the late 70s and early 80s and you can see that across the border you know i went through a list of different systems of uh, even with the icbms and the submarine launch ballistic missiles these are still sort of designs blueprints that emerged in the 1980s the genuinely new stuff things like the t14 armata and its chassis and the family of, of, uh, of vehicles that, on which that was going to be based. The Sukhoi 57, you know, the fifth generation aircraft, some of the newer missiles. These have, I think, a lot of money's gone into R&D and developing them, and they produce prototypes. And they sign contracts, for instance, for the Sukhoi 57 to enter serial production. But therein lies the rub, I think, in the Russian defence industry, and that is, is that I think the industry, as it stands at the moment, has got a lot better... Um, producing at reasonably high volumes, I say reasonably, not anything like the Soviet period, but reasonably high volumes of these derivatives of Soviet era designs. When it comes to the really new stuff, which requires precision machine tools, you know, if you're making a fifth generation aircraft, you want them all to be identical. And, you, you know, even just a little buckle in the airframe somewhere could be, you know, ruin the whole low observability of that aircraft, for instance. Right. So you need to have advanced machine tools for that because the Russian defense industry doesn't have that. The 10 or 11 or dozen or so so-called 57s that have been built are all completely different. They've all basically been sort of hand built and are not replicas of one another. Right. Um, so their challenge is to go from that to building the contract for 76 identical or at least you know, two sets of versions, the first set which will have the older engine in and the second which will have the newer engine, let's say. But let's suppose you have 20 of one and 50 of the other, but they're all identical. I question, you know, and I don't have access to classified information. I can only go off what I read in the open source literature, but I question whether the Russians have the up-to-date machine tools that will enable them to engage in that type of high-tech, large-scale production. Because if you do have a largely labor-intensive defense industry with older machine tools, that lends itself to producing precisely the goods that I've mentioned so far, but not so much for these other things. And I also think that that applies to things like the, uh, the hypersonic weapons. We see the Russian officials talking a lot and really talking up the apparent missile gap in their favor at the moment. My own guess, and again, I don't have access to certain information, but from everything I know about the Russian defense industry, it would surprise me a lot if they were able to produce large numbers of hypersonic missiles, for instance. Even some of the hypersonics that they said, you know, the Kinjal is essentially, as I understand it, an Iskander uh, ground launch missile launched from the air. 
Now, that's a creative use of something and it's innovative in, in, in its own way. Um, but this isn't a brand new air you know, launched system that um, might then be produced in hundreds. Instead, I would guess we'll probably see this deployed, if at all, in very small handfuls which, you know, the, the Russian government is saying, we have hypersonics, nobody else has got them, this changes the game. I can see why they would say that, but I, I just wonder whether they'd be able to produce them at any large scale. In particular, that applies to things like the Zircon, which is, is supposed to be the ship-launched and submarine-launched hypersonic missile. I read the Russian uh, press statements, and I read a lot of the, uh, uh, the, you know, the reports that come from there, but I don't buy it because it doesn't fit with a lot of other things that I see in the industry. I could be wrong. They could be doing a really good job of keeping this secret. And actually, they do have these, you know, 21st century production facilities um, that we don't know anything about. But I don't think so. So I think they've got prototypes. I think they've got good designs. They're very good at doing that. You know, the Russians are very advanced in, for instance, missile technology and surface-to-air missile technology, for instance. And it wouldn't surprise me that they're at the cutting edge of hypersonic research and development where I think they'll be more likely to fall down is on large-scale production of these things. Yeah, I think it's been a long tradition here in the U.S. that it serves a lot of the defense circles' interest to play up Russian military capabilities in order to kind of secure budgets or whatever it might be for their own purposes of modernization. By the way, on that front, it's one of the things that I commonly hear is Russia, they'll, they'll talk up the threats, they'll talk up the, the kiss and the equipment, but these very same people will very often also say that the Russian economy is no larger than Canada's, uh, reliant on oil, and spends less than the United Kingdom does on its military, and these things don't sort of tend to go together, which is part of why I write what I write and what, why I like to even, you know, to come on, on this program and talk about this is to say, look, I think they've got greater capabilities than we think. And it's a larger economy. It's the sixth largest economy in the world at PPP, not the, you know, the 12th or the 13th as it is at market exchange rates. It's, it's, it's level with Germany and being one of the largest in Europe. That's not to say it's anywhere near as big as the US or China, but it's a big power. It's in that second tier. And because it commits, it allocates quite a high share of GDP towards military production, it can buy quite a lot. But saying those things does not then mean that you've got this 10-foot giant. Actually, what it means is you've probably got a power that's pretty strong in its own neighborhood, and you wouldn't want to sort of, you know, poke a stick around too much uh, in it. But it has also severe limitations uh, in certain areas as well as strengths. And for me, I think that's what, um, when I'm trying to sort of bang the drum about talking about Russian defense spending and Russian military modernization more widely, is to try to have this more nuanced um, picture of, of where it is. Instead, what we tend to have is a much more alarmist running from one alarmist, you know, sort of uh, characterization or observation to another. But, you know, uh, but they're not really making sense and not being very coherent. It seems that, you know, the alarmists here in the U.S., you know, the counterpoint is that, well, you're saying that, you know, Russia has all these new technological capabilities in a, in a huge force structure and then they have such small military expenditures, which is, you know, you look back at the U.S. planners, you say, well, what are you guys doing, right? Like, how are they surpassing us in some areas and have a, have a robust force structure for so much less expenditure that makes the U.S. look incredibly inefficient with its military expenditure? But then when you, again, use that PPP rather than the MER, it puts it into better light that their real resource expenditure is actually relatively high. That actually makes Russia look not as efficient, not as productive relative to the U.S. 
because they really are spending a lot of human capital building these systems. And so that makes more sense for the, from their force structure. Yeah, agreed. Um, I, although I didn't, I have noticed that Mark Milley um, does like to use PPP when he's um, talking about the military expenditure of China and, and Russia. So uh, perhaps some people will use it, as you say, for, for, for the purposes of lobbying for greater resources for the US or for um, NATO uh, allies. I mean, you know, it, as ever with statistics, you know, you can, you can shape them and you can use them to your advantage and cherry pick which ones suit you <laughs> more than others. And I do think that with uh, with PPP, it is one that lends itself well to those who, who want to lobby for greater resources. But then as, I, I guess there's a, a logical corollary of that is that if we are accepting that, that Russia spends more than it does, then it might make policymakers think a bit more carefully about putting themselves in positions where conflicts might break up, you know, break, sorry, break out. You know, if you have a more accurate um, assessment of your adversaries or potential adversaries' capabilities, then it might make you think twice. You know, whereas I think bandying around that it's it's an economy smaller than Spain, it's got a tiny military expenditure, could lead some people, particularly civilian decision makers, who really haven't got a clue very often about military matters. They might be minded to think, well, of course we can um, we can put forces in this particular theatre up against the Russians because, you know, they're, they're, they're not very capable. Whereas at least with the PPP measure, it might give people, you know, pause to reflect. The Iran example is a very good one. Uh, the DIA's recent report on Iranian military power presented Iranian military spending in market exchange rates at being about $17 billion a year. Their purchasing power conversion, according to the IMF, is closer to four. So military expenditure at PPP is closer to 60 billion for Iran. And again, that would make a lot more sense. It smells more, you know, sort of uh, accurate when you think, you know, they've got these ballistic missiles, they've got their own independent defense industry that can build, you know, sort of armored vehicles and drones and things like this. That makes more sense than 17 billion. They're able to conduct all these operations all across the Middle East. Either that or they use 17 billion and they spend it so much more efficiently than any of our uh, Western governments do, <laughs> which seems unlikely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I tend not to think that the military expenditure efficiencies are really that much different across countries. I mean, if you use the MER, then my God, you know, the U.S. must be throwing money away in inefficiency. I wanted to wrap up here by questioning you not on something on Russia, but I've been hearing in the uh, you're in the uh, United Kingdom and Dominic Cummings has been talking about military acquisition reform there in the UK. Do you have any sense of what are those goals? What is he thinking? What might come out of that? What's what's going on with UK military acquisition reform? I read those reported comments this, this morning, and unfortunately, even as a British citizen, I tend to focus more on Russia. But what I could gather from it was that he was complaining that we'd been misallocating the resources that we have, um, that instead of buying, I don't know, either equipment or services used for certain types of warfare, cyber, for instance, that we had um, spent too much on these great big white elephant projects like the aircraft carriers. And then with it, the F-35s and not as much as uh, not as many F-35s as we said we would like to have bought. I, I've seen him complaining about um, about the efficiency of spending. I'm not sure how he intends to go about solving that. You know, lots of governments come in and say, right, we're going to be more efficient in spending. And of course, most you know, big ticket items, as you'll know, like aircraft carriers, tend to outlast several governments. So, you know, um, it's unlikely that Mr. Cummings is going to be around in 10 years time uh, in government. But some systems that might be um, acquired at this point will still be rolled out. 
What I will say is I think that a lot of the problems, a lot of the public discussion over this question in the United Kingdom boils down to the fact that we don't spend a lot on the military full stop. Right? Even though compared to other NATO countries who really don't spend a lot, we spend 2% of GDP. I think a lot of the complaints about overspends on, on the aircraft carriers, on uh, F-35s, on not having enough of the land forces, is a function of the fact that we spend 2% and not, say, 25 or 3 or 35 National defence and, you know, uh, the military is not a big issue in uh, in our country, despite the fact that countries like Russia and are presented in, um, you know, sort of very alarmist terms. That hasn't sort of filtered down to a public demand to spend more on the military, which we had during the Cold War. So as a result, policymakers are having to make do with relatively small defence budgets. And then when you choose to buy things like two aircraft carriers and the dreadnought class uh, SSBN, we're really not left with a great deal after it. And so you're seeing lots of jockeying around from different circles of defence trying to sort of lobby for more. So before Christmas, there was a, a report uh, from published by Rusi, the think tank, sort of bemoaning our lack of long range artillery and how our forces will be wiped out within a few seconds in the event of any land war with the Russians. Because, of course, the Russian army is basically an artillery force with a few men attached to it. And so you can see this as, as, as different forces are, are lobbying for more resources. That will continue. You, you know better than I do the, the, you know, the, the pitfalls of defense acquisition in the modern age with you know, highly complex systems, with long R&D and then production times. You know that how difficult it is to, to bring costs down there. Um, so for me, I, I think that the question that the government will have to grapple is with is whether or not we increase military spending as a share of deep, you know, to, to bear a greater defense burden in the way in which the Russians are prepared to do, the Americans are prepared to do, but the way in which most European, well, all European countries aren't. Richard Connolly, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you very much, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.